This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Indust the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Felix Schnitz about his new book, Genre and Video Game, Introduction to an Impossible Taxonomy. This book is a translation of the German original from 2020. Felix, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Rudolf. Felix, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us about a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite video game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now. Well, I'm a senior scientist at the Institute of Information Technology of Klagenfurt University in Austria, where I before graduated um, with a PhD from the Department of English and American Studies. So I'm basically involved in the humanities side of things and the technological side, especially with regards to video games, of course. And I am the co-founder of a master's program called Game Studies and Engineering, which offers exactly that. Um, We educate students in uh, humanities-related topics to video games. Uh, We educate them on the technological side of video games, introduction to computer graphics, for example, or or advanced game engineering. And yeah, I'm also the program director of this master's program and um, yeah, accompanying students from their very first steps into the topic onto ideally funding or founding their own game development studios. Uh, Recently, I finished a video game called Deathloop, which I very much enjoyed. It's playing around with that time loop metaphor, both on a story level but also in its uh, core mechanics it's been a very interesting game actually i've I've been taken quite by surprise but i didn't think much of it when it was initially released but yeah i had lots of fun with it and yeah the next game that's a good question actually do you have any recommendations for, for what i could play next well you know i'm an old chap so for me it's always gears 5 gears 5 gears 5 and some japanese visual novels and then i'm pretty much uh, I'm satisfied completely then. <laughs> yeah. 
Felix, um, I'd like to circle back to your uh, book now. Please tell me, how did you come to write genre and video game then? Well, it all started like uh, most academic journeys start basically with a call for papers. And that's actually a, a fun little anecdote because um, initially I you know, just briefly skimmed the call for papers and it was about genres and video games. And since I originally also come from a background in English and American studies and I dealt with, with genres quite for a bit during my, my bachelor's and, and master's degrees, um, that topic always fascinated me to a certain degree, um, especially... When I was still in my master's studies, uh, my focus was mainly on film, actually. And I only, you know, just slowly treaded into game studies territory. And in, in, in these early days, um, I, I quite often felt a bit like a partisan, so to speak. Um, I was part of a rather traditional uh, department, you could say. Um, I was also, you know, in, in touch with a lot of, of other undergraduates who didn't really know about game studies. So quite often I, I had to justify myself. I had to defend my topic choices and I constantly had to explain what's so intriguing about video games. Why would anybody want to write about video games? Yeah, these and were the days, right? These were the days. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thankfully, uh, gone in, in, in many modern departments. And the cool thing back then and nowadays is that video games are, of course, you know, extremely unique in how they deal with topics that we know from other research disciplines. And then genres are no, no exclusion uh, from that. In, in video games, especially, there, there is such a, a velocity. When it comes to the idea of genre, there's so much, you know, ambiguity, there's so much fluidity. And I really had some, some back in the day, I, th I thought pretty cool and unique ideas. Um, they're still pretty cool, actually. And I really wanted to tell the world about what I thought uh, about video game genres. And so I applied for that call for papers. And initially I thought it was, you know, about a book chapter or about a paper. And after a while, they contacted me and said, you know, this sounds pretty interesting and pretty innovative. Uh, are you ready to write a book about this? And so we're sitting like, oh, okay, didn't expect that. And I gave it some thought. And in the end, yeah, of course, I had to decide that I really want to write a book about this because there's so much to say about that topic. I mean, genre as such is a, a pretty vast topic field. Let's be honest here. And as already said, with video games, there's this phenomenon of interactivity a lot of things that happen in a video game are defined by player interaction, of course. And this means that we, we have to think about genres in a completely novel way. Quite often when we think about genre, um, many of us might think about genres when it comes to, to films or literature, for example, we think about categories. And we, we think about categories, you know, that um, are kind of open and wake towards their fringes. There's no clear-cut cases. But when it comes to video games, especially, I think in, in many cases, we have to ditch the idea of genre categories completely. They are a useful tool, but in order to understand how genres function in video games, we have to think of, of yeah, dynamics. We have to think of interactions. We have to think of fluid changes in what we actually think of as, as genre categories to understand what's actually going on there, which is also why I titled the book The Impossible Taxonomy in the end, because to me, video game genres are really about a taxonomy that doesn't really function like we think a taxonomy should function. Mm, yeah. 
That, that's a, actually that's a very good point. I've uh, I've met uh, Gunnar Freiermuth, uh, I think two weeks ago at a conference in Nuremberg, where he was also briefly uh, mentioned the dynamics between or the yeah the relation the complex very complex relationship between genre and um, and game mechanics actually, and um, he also I think what he was trying to say is that this kind of um, expectation management is going on but it's much more um yeah the gravitas of the of the whole of the whole topic is you feel it as you you feel it as a scholar and and as a researcher when it comes to genre and especially the medium of uh, video games yeah very true um this might be a good uh, time then to have a little uh, deep dive into your chapters of the book it seems like you are laying the groundwork on your very first pages when you classify a video game as a so-called so objet ambigu. Could you please explain why you chose this particular term and tell me also its significance for the next chapters? Sure thing, Rudolf. Um, the term is incredibly unknown, actually, outside of rather specific philosophical or artistic circles. Uh, Obey during my research, I really had to wonder why it sees so little application when it comes to game studies. Because especially in the digital age, I think the term has quite a bit of you know general applicability to the idea of an open-ended medium that is defined quite a bit by us as, as users or players or whatever you want to call us uh, interacting with it. So Basically, the objet ambigu is a sort of thought experiment that made its initial appearance in certain philosophical strands in France during the 20th century. And as the, the name already suggests, it's in a sense about indefinite or enigmatic objects that we deal with. So a objet ambigu would be an object, artifact, item, trinket, um, talisman, whatever you want to call it, that cannot be defined um, in a yeah in, in a closed fashion. You cannot put a label onto an objet ambigu. You may identify individual parts of it and describe individual parts of it, but the moment in, in which you try to puzzle all of it together and grasp it as a whole, it's doesn't work out anymore. These parts seem to be contradicting. They don't fit together anymore. And still, it's something that you have to deal with. Um, and I know this, this all sounds incredibly abstract right now and, and really hard to imagine, which actually is kind of the point of the entire ordeal. But um, maybe we can come back to that thought later. What I think is really helpful, actually, is to discuss this phenomenon with the help of an actual example. And there's a pretty wonderful example in a dramatical text called Eupalinus, or The Architect, by French lyricist and philosopher Paul Valéry, um, where the objet ambigu plays a pretty important role. Um, so what we have with Eupalinus is a, a, a kind of dramatic narration in which Socrates plays a role. Uh, Socrates is in the afterlife. He's uh, strolling across the shores of uh, um, Hades um, or the, the, the River Styx and he is recounting a um, story about a, a weird happenstance that happened to him at a young age when he was also strolling across the shores of a beach and he found a mysterious stone that for whatever reason um, immediately caught his attention and completely immersed himself in its, its weird nature in the, stone, um, in the text 
pardon me, in, in the text, the stone is described as having a extremely ominous or ambiguous uh, shape or texture. So um, he, he tries to figure out where the stone is actually coming from in the sense of, is this a shape that nature could actually create? Uh, weathering effects, um, you know, crushing against other stones, for example, or if it's actually something that has been man-made. And the thing is, if he looks at it from certain angles, it looks more man-made. If it looks at it from other angles, it looks more natural. And he, nevertheless, he cannot really define it. He can't clearly pinpoint down where the origin of that stone is. And that's driving him crazy in that moment. And now, now this is actually telling us quite a bit about the general nature of things, if you allow me the poetic expression, namely two things in detail. Uh, first and foremost, we as readers are reminded of the fact that the objet ambigu is actually, you know, nothing strange or otherworldly, but it's a pretty uh, evident uh, phenomenon in our daily life. There's this always that one thing that you, you know, you see on TV or that you hear about or that you see while taking a stroll in the park and you cannot really make total sense of it immediately. We, we all have have, have, um, have have made these, you know, or have, have, have seen something like that at least once in our lifetime. Uh, moreover, though, um, what's really remarkable about this little little excursion into the life of, of young Socrates is that um, the way uh, Valerie narrates this tale, all of a sudden his attention switches from the objet ambigu to Socrates. So um, it's, it's a story about a person rather than about an object. And uh, to remind you, Socrates was incredibly irritated by the stone up to a point where he actually throws it away in his frustration because he cannot make any sense of it. But the stone keeps occupying his mind. And again, this is something that I guess all of us have experienced at, at some point in our life. There's this, this situation, this, this moment, and we can't just let go of it because it's really occupying us. And this is basically um, the, the defining moment of the objet ambigu in Valerie's tale. Because um, Socrates, as already said, he found a stone at a rather young age. And he found it actually not just at a young age, but at a very important moment in his personal development. Because he was in a time of his life where he was spending a lot of time thinking about what he should do with it according to the story. So um, in, in the story for Socrates, there was a moment where he thought about becoming a architect or a, a shipwright or anything else, really. Uh, however, at that very moment where he couldn't make sense of that stone and where he threw it away in frustration, he realized his great interest in dealing with such situations. He realized that this is what he... He, you know, wants to spend his his lifetime on thinking about the the puzzle situations that you cannot really solve, asking the great questions that you cannot really find a precise answer to, and uh, we can actually interpret it in a way of of saying this is what inspired him to become a philosopher in the long run. So all of a sudden, we have a story that's not just about a mysterious object, but it's about a object that's evoking a potential in the beholder, a potential in the people dealing with it and interacting with it. And there, there were a lot of potentials in the objet ambigu, but due to uh, 
Socrates' very own personality, this is the potential that the objet ambigu released in him. And now you, we might be at a point where you actually see how I can translate this onto video games, because this is, at least from my perspective, this is pretty much what video games do to all of us. In most video games, you know, even the ones that are pretty linear, like more like interactive films, uh, we have to make choices. And the video game offers us to make choices. And of course, these choices are, in a sense, dictated by the infrastructure of the video game, the way its systematic functions, its rules, its mechanics. But at the same time, they are never predestined totally by the video game. There's always the human factor in there. There's always player interaction in there. There's always agency in there. And so what video games do is they provide us with a sense of potential. And we as players um, discover our own potential um, with regards to how we want to see a story unfold, what kind of things we want to experience when, when playing a video game. And therefore, the, the, the idea of the objet ambigu is that we have an item that is indefined, and that is encouraging us to be creative, to be innovative, to think about what we actually want to have and release that potential through the medium. So it seems to me that we are talking about a very complex relationship here. Since I got the feeling this this object, then it also mm, it also needs our curiosity, then, right? Because if it's just I, I would imagine if it's just uh, if it's just something we would we would get at the first glance, right? It wouldn't be that interesting. But on the other hand, its very its very nature is something that uh, that keeps us uh, constantly on the move and trying to figure out what what's this all about? What is this? But if if this very person gets his or her hand on a for example stone or something quite <clears throat> another object and the sense of the sense of wonder and the sense of curiosity is not, let's say, developed that much. How would that reflect on these on this interaction or relationship then? It would reflect um, on on the relationship in the very sense of that phrasing that you just used, and I really love that, Rudolf. Um, that it, it it keeps us going, it keeps us running. So um, a video game, first and foremost, does exactly nothing unless we interact with it. I mean, of course, we have these, these video games that open with a little demo sequence if we don't press any buttons, but you, you know what I'm getting at. In order to actually experience a video game, we have to interact with it. So that's a given for the medium. And this is also the reason why we play video games. We wouldn't play video games if we didn't seek interactive experiences to a certain degree. And um, to be more precise, we didn't seek, uh, or we wouldn't seek video games if we wouldn't seek interactions or experiences according to what we want to experience. We um, always want to act, interact with the video game in, in a way that that is kind of fulfilling to us. And many video games nowadays allow us, you know, this this kind of optionality, this this um, this pool of of opportunity and possibilities that we can, I don't know, apply. Um, puzzle solutions, that we can apply our intellect to solve issues, that we can apply uh, mechanical finesse to, to solve issues. And all of this is, is coming out in a video game if we interact with it, once we interact with it. And uh, it keeps us going in the sense of that this can, of course, also change while we interact with, with the medium of the video game. Uh, we might, you know, 
um, try mechanical finesse at one point. If that doesn't work out, we might try intellect. If that doesn't work out, we might try brute force. Uh, everybody, uh, all of our listeners and all of us who ever played a role-playing game, for example, know that the greatest joy of a role-playing game, of a computer role-playing game, is actually to try out different character archetypes. One time we might want to play the mage, then we want to play the bard, then we want to play the, the barbarian, for example. So... Um, as with the original objet ambigu, you know, depending on how we look at it, we might see different things and we might engage with it differently depending on what kind of aspect of the objet ambigu uh, we're seeing right now or that we feel inclined to interact with right now. And we might not get all of them at the same time. Not all of them can happen all at once. But um, depending on our curiosity, we might interact with aspect A first, then with aspect B and so on and so forth. And, and this is already, you know, the, the foundational concept from my approach to video game genres, because genres in a video game, they, they follow some fixed guidelines. There is a, a finiteness to the infinity of the objet ambigu. But until we reach that finiteness, there is a almost never ending pool of, of variation, of, of interaction, of dynamics, of us as, as beholders, as spectators, or as, as players setting up or igniting change in dynamics, in igniting a switch or, you know, just sticking to, to certain aspects longer before then abruptly moving on to other aspects because we're able to do so. Yeah. I think this is very this is very exciting, and I'm, I'm I gotta admit that when I first read these paragraphs where you talk about this these ob kind of objects, um, I was not sure that I quite got it, you know. But your explanations here are really great, and you help me a lot. I was wondering um, because you just were mentioning from point A to point B and then C. Do you think this is, um, sorry for, for digging in here, but this is really interesting. Please um, do so. Yeah. Um, do you think this, when, when people these days uh, currently are talking about this FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, that this is something that is so, could become so powerful as a characteristic of these very objects that it, it just, the frustration is too high because we get this feeling there might be something in it, but even if I even I if even if I manage to find out what it really is about, I, I'm not sure whether I'll be able to check out all its options, and I have this actual fear of missing out all the other options if I yeah if I take this one route and then the next one the next one may be closed or even not uh, existent anymore. I think it's definitely a way of coping with that fear of missing out. And um, if you, you allow me to, to put in my all-time favorite game studies citation in here, because there's something very wonderful that uh, German philosopher Daniel Martin Feige said about a video game when he called uh, the video game or the, the defining idea of the video game as uh, das Prinzip des sich selbst durchspielens, the, the principle of playing through yourself as you interact with the medium of the video game. So um, by granting us, you know, these different routes of, of tackling its issues, challenges, puzzles, video game, of course, engage in a sense with that fear of missing out because we can try one solution to an issue. And if we're not satisfied with it, we can just reload ideally and try a different solution. But at the same time, it's also therapeutic in a sense that we are uh, 
in a sense, bound to stumble upon a way of interacting with video games that just suits ourselves best. And, and once we found that way, uh, we might be inclined to just stick to that route and, yeah, um, thereby learn a lot about ourselves while we're doing so. I mean, that's, that's also something that I guess many of us have realized if we ever had to make, uh, if we ever had to make uh, tough moral choices in a video game. In, in, in the moment of a tough moral choice in a video game, it's actually, it's of course also about the, the grand scheme of the video game, its narration, its mechanics, but in a sense, it's also about ourselves. Like how far would we go to resolve certain issues in a video game? And, and what does it tell us about ourselves if we do so? Yeah, I would. Well, we we gotta maybe maybe we have to continue this conversation uh, when we see each other again. This is really exciting stuff. Please so, let's do so. Looking yeah, forward of to course. <laughs> um, well, before you talk about video game related fields of genre discourses, you intentionally build a bridge in order to help readers to get a better understanding of the term genre itself. And that very bridge is your second chapter where you start off by not only taking your readers through the origins and functions of the term, but also discuss the key questions of a modern genre theory. Yes, that was very important to me, actually. And I, I guess a part of why this was so important uh, to me is, is rooted in my own history as a student. And it's also, in a sense, related to the kind of target audience that I wanted to reach with that very book of mine. Because um, on the one hand, I, of course, wanted to appeal to the seasoned academic who has maybe, you know, never heard of, of game studies before and kind of needs a, a introduction to it and specifically an introduction to my very thoughts on the medium. And I also wanted to appeal to a student audience still. And, you know, as a student, uh, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I really would have loved to find a book like that in the bookshelf of our university library that I can just, you know, take out and not just um, take a, a deep plunge into a very complex topic immediately, but it also takes me by the hand a little bit and, and lays out the basic foundations of the topic. So it, it was really important to me to talk about genre in general at first before then going on and, and figure out how genre in, in video games work because as already hinted at it's incredibly complex in video games and I think a lot of these ideas would have been lost um, if I yeah, didn't precisely elaborate where I'm coming from here. And I think this is actually really important in game studies in, in general because um, and, and I, I guess you, you may have made similar experiences in the past Game studies is an incredibly multidisciplinary field. It's incredibly interdisciplinary. It's a medium that um, is nowadays um, receiving a, a lot of, of well-deserved attention from all kinds of fields of studies, you know, not just literary studies and media studies, but also um, computer technology, of course, for example, uh, from philosophy, from psychology, from cultural studies, social sciences. Uh, architecture is in there a lot. Recently, I've met a lot of architects who are actually dealing with video games and video game environments. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it, 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 it's intriguing, isn't it? And, and for yeah. that reason, specifically, I think it's always really important to stress where you're coming from. And I'm a literary studies person. I'm a cultural studies person. But I cannot assume... Um, you know, when I'm at a game studies conference, for example, or when I talk to people who are interested in game studies, that they have the same kind of background as I do, because that's just not true. 
when it comes to video games and the, the large interdisciplinary crowd of researchers and students that they attract. And yeah, for, for that reason also, I thought it was really important to talk about my understanding of genres. And I know that there are different understandings of genre. But if you know where I'm coming from, I think ideas such as the objet ambigu and what the objet ambigu might have to do with a, let, let's call it traditional or outdated understanding of genres, all of a sudden makes a lot more sense. And so key ideas that were really important for me to stress in the beginning, for example, were that genres or our understanding of genres have, has changed over the centuries, that genres in their very ancient original sense were something that was used to classify and to distinguish. So um, if you wanted to write for a genre, you were expected to stick to the rules. Let's call it that way. Whereas in, in modern genre studies or in, in the modern discourse on genres, it's all about these fringe cases and changes. How do genres develop? How do new uh, media releases add new markers of identity to specific genres? How do genres develop over the centuries? So, for example, how did horror look in the 1950s versus how does horror as a narrative genre or as an ambience genre look nowadays and yeah it's, it's basically one of the, the initial steps I'm taking towards the idea of uh, telling people that have never dealt with genres before that genre is maybe a fixed category in a very colloquial way of dealing with it that would be your first initial contact to a genre okay it's a kind of category but that you actually have to think about these categories as something that is still constantly changing and developing. Yeah, so it seems, yeah, it's a very fluid concept, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You also do argue for an understanding of genre as an own ideological discourse and introduce the question of historicity within this discussion. Um, why did you think this point is necessary? I think it's necessary because it's something that, um, and again, this is my appeal to an interdisciplinary crowd, so to speak. It's, it's something that's not really aware to everybody unless you are actually encouraged to, to give it some thought by a chapter in a book on video game genres, for example. And it's actually something that I've been inspired to do by a lot of student interaction at our university because as already mentioned, we have a master's program that is encouraging students from a lot of different disciplines to join. You have the people who are pretty well versed in the technological side of things, in the humanities side of things, and also people who are, of course, avid video gamers. People who nowadays join a master's program on video games are mostly people who have started playing from a very young age and are still doing it nowadays. And they've all been molded by, by fan communities, you could say. Um, their understanding of video game genres comes from, from internet communities. It comes from discussing with other students in, in you know, the, the um, recess ground of the local high school, for example. It, it comes from them reading video game magazines when they were younger or watching YouTube videos and Let's Plays nowadays. And they realize that genre terminology plays a role in their understanding of video games, but they rarely realize um, what kind of effect it has if they listen to to other sources, if they 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 actively you know seek input from other sources, but also if they recite 
genre terminology from these sources. And some of the, the biggest debates that we have nowadays in seminars are about Soulspawn games, especially now with the release of Elden Ring, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, of course, you know, the, the Soulspawn community is kind of infamous for being on the very fringe case or on, on the very borderline of being experimental and innovative on the one hand. But there's also that kind of tainted idea of exclusivity going on with Soulspawn games. This, you know, whole um, get good kind of shtick that has developed as a, a metaphor for describing Dark Souls or, or Bloodborne online. And um, it's, it's really intriguing to, you know, engage these students in, in genre discussions and tell them that Soulsborne is, of course, a, a genre term that is nowadays used. And then, you know, now let's sit together and think about what do we connect to the idea of a Soulsborne game? And, of course, all of a sudden they talk about topics like challenge or, or level design. But then you also make them realize that challenge has a, a, a different meaning for different people, of course. And that all of a sudden you create a, a genre idea that is at the same kind wake. Because, I mean, we have media outlets calling Cuphead Souls-like, simply because it's difficult. And at the same time, it's it's rather pushing its boundaries towards a, a sort of fake exclusivity. And all of a sudden you have a, a room chock full of students who are aware of the fact that they're actively shaping this discourse by engaging on, on Reddit with others, by engaging on, on YouTube with others, by leaving comments on Let's Plays, by writing papers about video games that are then potentially read by, by other students or that they are presented at, at, at poster conferences and so on and so forth. And I think this is this really important for, for us to recall and remember that genre is not something that happens plainly. Genre is, is not a natural category. It's always a man-made category or a human-made category. And therefore, it's, of course, something that all of us have a hand in, in defining and deciding. And I guess, you know, especially for people who have aspirations of being game developers one day, it's incredibly important to realize that a, a genre is not a cookie cutter that you just have to follow because people tell you how this cookie cutter should look like and that a role-playing game should be like this and that an action RPG should be like that. But it's something that you can actually define yourself and that you can push your own boundaries into, so to speak. Yeah. Well, the challenge, of the challenge so to speak, of any... Uh, God-given entity, then. <laughs> it's funny you were mentioning Souls-like, and I think when I first read about this this specific term Souls-like, um, I was astonished because I thought, well, 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 here we go. We had this term Doom clone in the '90s, and um, at, at least at least this new term Souls-like then. In a way, it has softened up, right? Because you're not a clone anymore. You are like something else, but you're not a clone then. So <laughs> I thought that was funny <laughs> somehow. It absolutely is. Um, this is basically the, the idea of the objet ambigu in the workings, totally. Because as you said, uh, it's called souls-like. So it's not clearly defined what it actually is. And... It also makes it clear to us, you know, that there's a lot going on in video games, actually, that might have an impact on how we understand what genre is. And at the same time, we have video games like Dark Souls, uh, 
and still it's not really clear what the defining attributes of a Souls-like game would be. So all of a sudden we're, we're already taking a major step away from the idea of, of genre as a more or less stable category towards a wake pool of ever-changing ideas, concepts that maybe in their unique constellation define what a soul's like is but even that constellation is is shaky to the utmost yeah well you you close your second chapter then with the very idea that technology can be read or understood as a genre catalyzer um Mm -hmm. i wonder could you please elaborate on this dynamic oh with great pleasure um it's actually one of the topics that fascinates me most about studying video games and it's also one that takes us back to the very origins of video games actually back to the, the 1960s you know very early video game space war where making video games was not a lot about having an idea because the idea of a video game was not really existent back then but it was about the idea of mastering technology the very first video games we had um came to existence because he had a couple of very awesome and clever people who um, had the idea, let's do this. Let's try if something like this can actually work on a computer. And then they had to teach themselves and educate themselves into in, in, in how can you make a computer do what we want this to be like? How can we make a computer generate images? How can we then move these images? Uh, how does uh, the, the iconography of something interactive on a computer screen come to be. And of course, nowadays, we are miles, uh, light years away from that already, actually. Um, and, and you can actually download something like an RPG maker that tells you how to make a video game from the get-go. But still, the idea um, of technology as something to, or technological benchmarks as something to strive for is still very much existent in, in game design. With every new hardware innovation, you have people uh, trying to master that hardware innovation. Um, most obviously, when it comes to the graphical department, of course, you know, with, with every new generation of, of computer hardware, all of a sudden games look better. But in a sense, this also encourages you as game developer to master this hardware better, to give your games a even more photorealistic look or even more unique look which, of course, plays a decisive role in the, the genre appearance of your video game. But um, perhaps even more obvious, um, or even more obviously, we could talk about controller innovations, for example. Let's, let's think about your typical Nintendo consoles. Uh, let's think about the switch from Super Nintendo to Nintendo 64 to GameCube to Wii. Every time you have a new controller, and every time you have a you have groups of developers, you have development studios who want to make the most of that controller and who want to implement it ideally into their ideas of gameplay. And I, I think in the area of Nintendo consoles to switch from GameCube to Wii, this is actually where it gets the most obvious because all of a sudden you have games where you really have to use your, your body movements together with the controller in order to have an impact on, on what happens on screen. All of a sudden, you you swing your arm like you would swing a tennis racket or like you would swing Link's sword in, 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 in the Zelda game that we had on the Wii. And this, of course, is then a unique mechanical feature that um, 
has a, a impact on how we understand the mechanical genre of that video game. Because um, pressing a button is something quite distinguishable from moving your arm in a sword-like movement in order to have an effect on what's happening in a video game. And um, along these lines, it's also important for me to mention that, of course, it's not just about hardware innovation, but it's also about software innovation because software innovations, especially game engines, are a pretty decisive factor in how we can you know, reflect on the history of certain video game genres. Let's take the Frostbite engine, for example. Let's talk about games like Baldur's Gate. Let's talk about Icewind Dale. Let's talk about uh, Planescape Torment. All of these games have become hallmarks for, for or hallmark entries, legendary games for how we understand computer role-playing games. They have all shaped so much about our understanding of that very genre. And this is all rooted back to how um, Black Isle Studios applied the Frostbite engine and how they made the most use of it in order to tell a, a story set in a very specific category of games, so to speak. And it's also interesting from a, well, let's say, a retrospective point of view, because um from time to time, it's very difficult to 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 get across the the insight to your students, at least from my from my experience, that h- how much really technology or the the aforementioned hardware technology, when it comes to the user interface via controllers, really does shape your uh, impression and your experience with that very um, hardware generation, right? Because they, they at some point they just have to understand how how um, significant is it was for this very specific game to have that kind of um, of interface and not just uh, using an, an emulation and um, using your mouse and keyboard again because twenty years ago it was totally different because the interface was was. Yeah, also different as well. It's not so easy to to recreate then these kind of um, elder um, experiences. Absolutely, and and this is also where you can see um, hardware capacity going hand in hand with with control schemes and controller designs going hand in hand with game ideas, as we could see with the switch from. Uh, 2D games to 3D games, or especially with the advent of third-person shooters, for example, because you had third-person shooters on consoles, of course, and all of a sudden players realized, you know, the the use and and usability of um, of, um, uh, of of different kinds of control schemes of of going to to um, to um, controls why you know little control sticks, and in contrast to just mashing buttons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. Hmm. <laughs> this is really fascinating. Um, Felix, let's let's um, s- just say was saying about, about to say switch, but we're not switching anything. <laughs> we are skipping not anything. Just be moving along. We are moving to the third chapter actually, and this is a very rich and, and really dense one as well, um, because you were able to identify six fields altogether of video game genre discourses then. And I bet our listeners are very eager to find out more about them. So 
let's start with the first two ones, and those are design and marketing. Yes, absolutely. So my idea was to check um, what fields would you most likely engage with when you talk about uh, video game genres. And the first one, of course, is design, because from game designers, we actually have our first documentation of video game genres, so to speak. Again, we're kind of moving back into the early past of video games where the entire idea of creating a video game was extremely innovative still. And back in the day, you, of course, didn't have genre categories because the medium as such was extremely novel. But what we have from these early days are very early design documents of people who tried to make up their mind about how video games could actually function. And you know, from, from this, for example, we have our very first ideas of strategy games versus action games. And of course, we have to see both of these terms in, in very broad fields. So um, in, um, in Crawford's The Art of Game Design, for example, we can still align the idea of a strategy game with role-playing or with what, what we later call adventuring, for example. But for that reason alone, talking about design is extremely important. Learning to see where genres actually come from, how they develop, uh, how they all of a sudden got, you know, um, not really all of a sudden, I mean, this, this happened over decades, but how genres got more fine-tuned, how all of a sudden there was more genre diversity, how sub-genres came to be. Um, talking about design is also important when we talk about the life cycles of genres. Um, in, in my book, for example, I talk a lot about Battle Royale shooters, um, which is one of the most recent examples where you can see it, how certain games bring up the, the innovation of a genre, how other games then kind of perfect the idea, how they uh, create the perfect melange of factors that we would kind of understand as belonging to a Battle Royale shooting type of game, how the trend slowly fades again, how new trends are coming up, and so on and so forth. And... With that, the entire idea of perhaps also estimating what kind of genre trends could be coming up in the future. And design and marketing are hand in hand, or they go hand in hand when we talk about video game genres, of course. But at the same time, you could say that they are strange bedfellows, so to speak. Because on the one hand, you have designers who nowadays stray away from the idea of genre labels. Um, I think one of the prime examples for that would be Tin and Sylvester's work, who is really all about describing how a video game should be about a experience. And you cannot put a label onto an experience. You can try to categorize an experience, but it should speak for itself. It should stand for itself. Whereas in marketing, it's really important for you to rely on these labels because you want to sell a product to a customer audience. And... You, you want to reach your, your target audience by speaking in labels that they know. So on the one hand, you have a, a, a field straying away from you know, fixed ideas and categories. And on the other hand, you have entire marketing divisions and companies trying to figure out what kind of terminology you could use that your audience knows about. And it helps them to imagine what kind of game they can expect when they, I don't know, buy... The, the the newest from software game or by the newest CD project red game 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. True, yeah. Um, it's FIFA with a twist. It's Warzone. It's Warzone. It's Warzone on on steroids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what you can do when you market your own games. But of course, then you also have you you know sources lying outside of distinguished distributors or development studios and of of course the, the easy way out would be to just describe it by by calling it like another game um souls like um but at the same time you, you still have to rely on these broad categories which is also something I, I i like how you called it um or how you used that phrase with a twist here because this is really one of the greatest issues that you're facing in marketing on the one hand you you want to use broad labels because you want to appeal ideally to a broad audience, more people spending more money and so on and so forth. But at the same time, you still want to tell them how you distinguish yourself from other products. So all of a sudden, it is the role-playing game with a twist or it is the, the action game with just a pinch of, of racing simulator <laughs> to make something up on the spot. Yeah. It's uh, FIFA cum granosalis. <laughs> so uh, your next two stops are then journalism and education. Yes, precisely. Um, journalism, because it's important for me to talk about how, um, you know, certain interpolative centers are shaping our ideas of genres. Again, this is in a sense taking us back to the idea of ideology, because um If you, you know about video games, you, of course, try to find your journalistic sources on, on, on certain genres by relying on a shared set of, 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 of terms, on, on key ideas, on key labels that you would use to describe a genre. Uh, but also, if you don't know anything about video games at all, and if you just want to learn more about them on a very preliminary level, if you rely on, on journalistic sources, if you read your your newspaper and, and there's a, a article on a video game in there, this is also where you first get in touch with genre terminology on video games. So um, journalistic outlets actually play a pretty important role when it comes to to shaping and then coining certain key ideas of, of video game genres. And I also found out in my research that journalistic outlets can be pretty innovative when it comes to the genre descriptions. For example, the idea of a Souls-like game, that's something that really um, got hold with, um, with uh, YouTube Let's Plays, for example. That's something that really um, got a hold of with, with reviewers who wanted to describe video games as as being like Dark Souls, but didn't want to flat out call it being like Dark Souls. So this is where, where the term actually got hold. And this is also where you constantly see um, rather unique terms popping up for video game genres. Uh, what's one of the terms that I stumbled upon? Loot shooter, for example. All of a sudden, with games like Borderlands, you had the idea of a loot shooter that was about shooting things and, yeah, looting things. 
But that's so something that not, I think not a ludic shooter, but a loot shooter. A loot shooter, precisely. <laughs> yeah. a, a shooter where where it that that's just as much about you know being able to to um, defend yourself against enemies as it is about taking new equipment and items from these enemies. So in a sense, it would be a, a shooter with RPG mechanics, but apparently looting. A, a enemy is such a, a core specificity of an RPG that it deserved its own genre label, according to certain journalistic outlets. Hmm. O tempora humoris. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> finally, your last two fields of uh, video game genre discourses you have been identifying were uh, then science and canonization. They were. They were. And in a sense, they're both connected to, to education which I completely uh, skipped out in your last question, I must admit, because I was so stuck on that loot shooter all of a sudden. Uh, but, but I think we can also talk about them all in, in unison, so to speak, because from an educational perspective, um, you it, it's quite fascinating because all of a sudden you have quite a different need for genre terminology than in other fields, uh, because all of a sudden it's important to you how you can apply certain video games in a classroom environment, for example. So um, you would uh, ditch certain labels in favor of others. You would also um, find other kinds of, of, of hyper-taxonomies, so to speak, because um, you would need different games to talk about physics or, or chemistry than you would use in a language class, for example, or in a class that would try to encourage you in, in discussions on, on political topics or moral topics. And this is a phenomenon that's actually quite comparable to genre discourses in sciences, um, especially um, game studies, of course, um, because game studies, um, as you know, it's a rather young academic field. I mean, we can basically talk about game studies since the, the early 2000s. Of course, we had publications on video games before that, but the early 2000s were basically the formational age of game studies, so to speak. And with that, you all of a sudden have a, a lot of people or a, a lot of different research fields trying to apply their own knowledge to game studies, of course, because th th there's not really you know, a fixed game studies methodology yet. And with that, you also have a, a, a vast amount of different taxonomies popping up left and right. Everybody wants to... To, to be the first one to coin a, a taxonomy for video game genres. And all of them are, are slightly different. All of them are overlapping to a certain degree. There are um, taxonomies that are extremely um, leaning towards a essentialist side of things and basically talk about three to four genres. Then again, you have genre taxonomies that speak about 52 genres all of a sudden. Um, quite an infamous one, actually. Um, basically, every couple of, of months, you have a new genre taxonomy popping up by, by somebody who thinks, oh, okay, they, they found a solution to talk about genres in video game. And I think this trend will continue for quite a while. And they, don't get me wrong, I admire all of these taxonomies. And they, they all highlight key aspects of how we deal with video games extremely well. I think they are also extremely relevant when it comes to the history of game studies and to the history of the video game because they they all show us how proliferous the medium of the video game actually is. Um, the moment you come up with a genre taxonomy, um, 
it's it's basically outdated again because by then you you have fifty to a hundred to a thousand new uh, video games being released on Steam or on any other platform that yeah challenge your ideas about what a video game genre should be like that kind of overthrow your ideas that are innovative in how they mix certain genre attributes or genre ideas. And this is how, how it's going to continue. And, and, and this is why it's so important to, you know, have these step-by-step taxonomies always trying to, to catch up with the quite elusive video game. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, canonization. Like... Sorry, you first, please. Yeah, sorry. I was just uh, thinking that, that next to the very question, what is a digital game? This is also a typical question uh, for uh, for those early five o'clock in the morning meetings uh, at the game studies conference at the bar at the hotel bar. Then, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, discussing about what really what what kind of new genre this or that game now really is. But of course, yeah, you're absolutely right. The moment you define something, it's basically gone. Yeah, out of the window. <laughs> absolutely, and and see the. The thing about uh, the sciences or uh, game studies in Java taxonomy is that everybody gets that by now. And still we try to come up with these taxonomies simply in order to, to uh, make this incredibly complex medium at least a little bit less elusive. Um, you know, in a sense, this is also one of the, the great reasons why I started with this book venture, actually. Uh, one of the, the earliest, uh, when I started at the University of Klagenfurt, I was questioned by a lot of people why I want to do research on video games, ranging from, you know, professors to also the, the public relations department of the university. Uh, I did an interview for them. And one of the things they, they cited me on was that I said that video games are overwhelming in the most positive sense. And I still stick to that. And I love that they cited me on that because this is true on so many levels. And of course, this is still true for for discussions on video game genres. And I, I love how this statement still, you know, upholds its value because we can try to, to understand what's going on with, with taxonomies by, by trying to tame the beast with ideas about a category. But in a sense, it's, it's just like engaging with the objet ambigu is when, when we take it as the video game, we, we learn a lot about ourselves the moment we engage with the video game by trying to make a taxonomy about it. Because it, it basically tells us a lot about our own research background. It tells us about where we are coming from when we approach the video game. And it also allows us to, to compare our different perspectives on the medium with our colleagues and potentially come up with new and, and even better ideas on, on how to tackle that beast. Yeah. Now, now, listeners, if... Um... I wasn't kidding you when I told you this is a very dense and rich book because now we're entering the next chapter, so to speak. And this is also a very rich chapter. My God, Felix, how did you do this? How <laughs> I, this is really uh, it's unbelievable. But let's 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 stick to our next chapter then, um, where you establish three different genre dimensions and talk about certain types of ongoing transformations within these very dimensions. And it's really great for, for your readers that you also exemplify every single dimension on the basis of one video game. This is very, very clever. And I think 
this is also Felix uh, Schnitz, the educator speaking and writing here, because this is really good writing. The first dimension um, you were mentioning then is system mechanics. Rudolf, I, I just have to get over how flattering you are. Thank you so very much for your kind words. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to do my best here. And I, I guess by now it might also be a good point to um, give a, a, a short summary of my my most important thesis statements or thoughts about video game genres before venturing into these genre dimensions. So basically, my idea is that um, if we want to talk about video game genres, we have to acknowledge the idea of the impossible taxonomy. Uh, we have to rely on key terminology of video game genres that we are used to already. When we try to describe what's going on in a video game, we, we have to talk about action adventures. We have to talk about role-playing games. We, we also have to talk about um, categories that we know from other media like Western, like horror, um, in order to describe what's going on here. But at the same time, we have to admit that it's not really that clear-cut. And in fact, that it's a huge and ever-changing hodgepodge of ideas, of concepts, of ambiguities. It's the objet ambigu. It's the, the ever-changing, undefinable complex of, of genres ideas that is quite dependent on what we as players actually do with it. And that being said, I at least uh, try to, you know, shape out three complex and vast dimensions that stand in constant change and interaction as we engage with a video game. And as you rightfully mentioned, the first one would be system mechanics, which might seem like the easiest one to grasp because this is basically what we are used to when we talk about video game genres. It's basically defining the mechanics of the video game, its rules, it's defining its basic um functionality, its controls, and therefore it's also closely related to the terms that we usually use uh, when we talk about video game genres on a colloquial level. Uh, it's about action, it's about strategy, it's about um, sports games, potentially it's about racing games if you want to, because with, with all these terms we have ideas about you know rules, controls in mind immediately. At the same time, it's also a rather intriguing concept when we talk about games that challenge the idea to the extreme and therefore, you know, really introduce us to the idea of dimensions. Um, because we have sandbox games that really put the idea of system mechanics to test by giving us a large variety of mechanical genres to interact with. And one of the games that I've grown really fond of and that I also used as an example in my book to describe that is Yakuza 6, The Song of Life, um, the conclusion of the original series of Yakuza games. Um, to those of you who haven't heard of the game before, you're basically playing a, a Japanese uh, mafiosi and you're on an adventure that would take at least three other podcasts to describe. So I'll stop it here. Um, but I'm going to tell you that it's a game that's setting you in a, a, a district of Tokyo and a small Japanese coastal village that allow you to engage with your environment in many, many different ways. And this is where it gets extremely crazy and proliferous uh, when we talk about um, mechanics because you can do so many things in this game. Um, by and large, the framework Framework could generally be described as an action RPG because you beat up bad guys. 
But at the same time, you earn experience points by beating up bad guys that you can then put into your character abilities. So there we can already see a phenomenon that's typical for video games, that we have genres that kind of merge together up to a point where you cannot really differentiate anymore. Is it more of an action game or is it more of an RPG? And at the same time, Yakuza engages you in so many different mechanical ways. It's, yeah, I can just repeat, it's crazy, really. Um, you play babysitter for a young child, and for that you have your own mechanics. You um, are strolling around Tokyo and can enter different locales, places, arcades, all of them offering different mini games. You can play darts, you can enter a Sega arcade, actually, and play various arcade games that own all have their own rules and have their own mechanics. Uh, there's a very weird episode in the game where you have to manage a baseball team, actually. And all of a sudden you go from action RPG to, yeah, baseball manager simulation, at least for, for a couple of minutes. Uh, and afterwards you're free to return to that point and keep managing your baseball team, but you can also ditch that completely. And so you constantly have a shift in mechanical genres. And what's, what's really wild about sandbox games like Yakuza is that um, these, these genres, that there's no real logic to uh, how these genres find you or how you stumble upon them. There are certain shifts in mechanical genre that you have to endure if you follow the main storyline of the game. There are genres or mechanical genres that would be completely optional. But you can also play the entire game just hanging around Tokyo playing arcade games and never bother to finish the main storyline at all. So there's 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 you know there's no systematic to it. There's to go back to the idea of the objet ambigu, depending on how you look at it, depending on how you want to engage with that video game, you may stumble upon certain genres, you may completely ditch others. There are certain shifts that you have to endure. There are certain shifts that you don't have to endure because you can skip certain parts of, of the game then. And it's it's absolutely mind-bogglingly complex. And perhaps as an overture to my my next Java dimension, which would be all about aesthetics and, and fiction, um, this, this mind-boggling you know, array of, of, of genres is also happening on a narrative level as well. There are subquests in Yakuza where you all of a sudden fight ghosts on a graveyard. So all of a sudden it switches from, you know, mafia, crime fiction to horror. There's an incredibly weird episode in the game that's dealing with a, a, a Freaky Friday kind of body switch scenario where you engage two high school students and they claim that they've switched bodies. And in the end, it turns out to be a lie. But all of a sudden, you are in a screwball comedy type of setup where you have to figure out what's going on here, actually. And then, so these, you know, these these vast vast layers of dimensions that constantly switch, change, are ambiguous. That's happening on all genre dimensions basically throughout the game. So this reminds me of um, again uh, coming back, circling back to to Gundolf Freyamud when he was talking about um, transmedia and he, he differs between those two types of transmedia. The one, the one would be like all the Disney franchises like Star Wars cro crossing from, from, uh, from audiobook to comic to movie. And the other one actually where he defines uh, digital games as some form of containers where all the different media um, can have their their own place basically and take on their take take their own speciality within this this very container. 
It's very interesting. But um, that's another topic then. You were already mentioning, right, the aesthetics of fiction and the second dimension. Um, let's continue, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, first of all, please allow me to mention it. I had a real blast with that chapter specifically because it allowed me to talk about one of my all-time favorite genre mashups, namely survival horror or specifically science fiction survival horror games. And again, we can already see a, a kind of merger taking place here between horror and science fiction. And this is what uh, this second genre dimension would all be about. It's about how the fictional world, how the, the fictional virtual world of a video game, how the container, as you just called it, would be designed. So it's about storyline decisions. It's about the dramatis personae, the different NPCs and characters that you can meet in a setting. It's about their aesthetical design, you know, ranging from ambience effects to sound design, to voiceovers, to visuals, of course, but also to narrative bits, also to um, devices of environmental storytelling. So as, as typical in many survival horror games, you find letters throughout or audiobooks that kind of give you clues about what's happening in that specific scenario. All these kinds of elements would fall into the aesthetics of fiction uh, in a, a, a video game. And this is also a chapter that I use to talk about how these different genre dimensions stand in touch with one another. Because it's it's already mentioned, it's you know complexity doesn't stop at one dimension. It's it's not just three individual Java dimensions, but it's a a constant fluctuation within these dimensions and between these dimensions. And I think survival horror games are pretty obvious about how system mechanics and the aesthetics of fiction interact with one another. Because typically speaking, survival horror games have a, a very distinct look to them. It's quite often, it's, you know, dark settings, ambient slides, it's horrifically designed NPCs or monsters that you have to engage with. But at the same time, the, the moniker of survival already implies that it's not just about how the game, game looks or the story that it's telling, but also about how it makes you feel as a player. And for that, of course, mechanics and rules play an important role. Uh, survival horror games play with resource scarcity. Um, you quite often have to evade combat or you have to flee monsters. You cannot really engage in combat all the time. And the game that I used as my prime example in that chapter is Dead Space. And Dead Space, for example, deals a lot with movement, I, I found out, and applies it to a, a fantastic effect. Um, the mechanics of Dead Space are incredibly slow-paced. So, for example, if you, you you play this astronaut or this, this space engineer called Isaac Clarke, and he wears an incredibly heavy spacesuit because usually, you know, he's, he's outside of a spaceship and then and trying to fix things. And uh, this suit then translates into incredibly slow-paced controls which adds an incredible amount of tension to that game because quite often you have a situation where you hear something and you're not really sure if it's just a ventilation shaft or if it's actually a dark cosmic horror lurking behind a corner behind you. And then you have to turn around and it's so incredibly slow and, and the footsteps you hear 
all of a sudden you realize it's actually footsteps and, and they get louder and louder and you want to turn around to see what's approaching you. You want to fight against it, but it just takes ages. It, it takes felt ages for you to turn around because the mechanics are so slow. And this is, of course, a dramatic effect that's adding incredibly well to the entire setup of dark spaceship corridors to cosmic horrors lurking around every corner. And yeah, you, you can just really see how different genre dimensions add up to create that very unique experience of that video game. Right, but we all do remember, of course, in space, no one can hear you scream. In, in space, nobody can hear you scream, but the people that are <laughs> trying to read a book next to you in the living room, they can, of course, hear you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> and you have to watch out for that, of yeah. course, all the neighbors who might be, be startled and, and, and check for you. Yeah, and calling the cops. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last one you, you are, you're describing, um, you call it Socio Right One, and it's spelled uh, R-I-T-E, Socio, Socio Right One. So what are we dealing with here? Uh, here we're dealing with rituals, basically. And the, the very blunt statement that would be underlying to that chapter is that on the one hand, we can different social behavior in genres, just as we, you know, as we watch a movie or play a video game and try to elicit genre clues to understand what's actually going on in there. Uh, the same thing happens to us in, in real life interactions with other human beings. Uh, we get clues about, you know, how we should address other people, how we should talk to them. I don't know, meeting friends at a formal dinner event, for example, would be something very different from meeting friends at a heavy metal concert. And at the same time, um, a, a thesis that I, I have or that I try to provide in my book is that with our behavior, we can also have an impact on the genre of the social situation that we are in. And at that point in, in our talk, I want to give a shout out to Marco Papusik. Marco is one of my, my students in Game Studies and Engineering, and he's an avid player of the Lord of the Rings Online. And thanks to him, I was actually able to get quite a bit of insight into that game and uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games in general are great to talk about uh, the idea of the social right and how it has an impact on genre dimensions because um, Lord of the Rings Online, like any other MMORPG, basically uh, distinguishes between different play servers that you can select from when you enter the game. You can join a PvE server, so players against enemies. You can join a PvP server, players against players. Uh, but you can also join so-called role-playing servers, for example. And once you enter a role-playing server, it's expected that you kind of act in character in accordance to your avatar. So um, we were playing on a role-playing server and all of a sudden there were players, you know, playing elves approaching us and they were talking in Elvish. They were addressing us in Elvish. They, they were using Elvish greet words. And I mean, you know that the Lord of the Rings, the books are rich in mythology and you know that they have an avid community of, 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 of readers and of people who want to engage with the world that J.R. Tolkien has created. And they draw from all of these resources to kind of play a role in the setting of the video game. However, if we join a PvP server, for example, all of a sudden we have a very different kind of communication happening between players because they would all of a sudden use terms like DPS, damage per second, and they would 
expect us or Marco in that case who was playing for me here uh, to know what DPS means and that we are able to um, reply to a question how much DPS you have um, with a, a, a knowing answer because um, all of a sudden the, the gameplay elements of, or certain gameplay elements are foregrounded on a PvP server and we um, engage with other players on a completely different level than we would do on a role-playing server and therefore, certain genre-dimensional aspects are highlighted in contrast to the other one. In a, a on a role-playing server, the fictional or the aesthetics of fiction would play a much bigger role. And on a PvP server, the system mechanics would play a much bigger role. And we can, you know, actually also have an impact on that by interacting with players on different levels. Um, we uh, I encouraged Marco to engage players on a pvp server in elvish it didn't go really well <laughs> but um this is because we we entered a, a social conversation with very different genre expectations on our interaction and it was quite intriguing to see what's coming from that and the really cool thing about the socio right actually is that um of course multiplayer games would be the ideal example for that because we engage with real other human beings but the social right is also something that can have an impact on our genre expectations and our understandings of a video game genre in single player games so um i don't know if you've played uh, the witcher 3 for example in the witcher 3 we are playing the eponymous witcher um, who is a monster hunter in a slavic medieval setting and in, at many occasions throughout the game, um, we as The Witcher Geralt can decide how a dialogue is developing. And in these dialogues, we can, um, you, of course, we can have an impact on how the dialogue goes by deciding how we want to answer as players. And these answers can, yeah, um, have a... Or, have a massive effect on the current situation that we are in. We can be direct and blunt. We can try to mince words. At some points in the game, we can be extremely snarky and sarcastic about the situation. And being sarcastic, of course, is always infusing a situation with a, a certain kind of humor in contrast to, you know, just stating blunt facts, for example. So all of a sudden, we can add humor to a situation and add a comedic effect or we can decide that we want to have humor and comedy in a situation versus being sincere. And this, I think, also shows that, you know, depending on how we think a situation should play out, in our opinion, can have an impact on the, the genre, even if it's just for a brief moment as we engage with NPCs in the game. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Um, I will spare you, of course, the the social disaster you were mentioning uh, beforehand. What was really going on? That's another topic for maybe a hotel bar uh, meetup at 5 a.m. in the morning. Then we have taken a lot of your time. Thank you so much. But um, please tell us um, what are you working on right now, and of course, what will you be playing next? Oh, with pleasure, dear Rudolf. Um... I have to mention here that writing on video game genres was really eye-opening to me and my research because it really introduced me to the idea of subjectivity when talking about video games and um, in, in how far subjectivity 
or basically I while writing, I educated myself in the idea of how subjectivity must play a bigger role in game studies. Because the player, if a player has such a big impact on video game genres, and how basically, you know, the both of us could play Elden Ring, again, for example, and have very different uh, genre impressions coming from that game, because we are approaching it in different fashions that are unique to, to you and unique to me. Uh, subjectivity must play a bigger role in other areas of, of game studies as well. Um, a couple of months ago, I actually just finished my dissertation on the very idea of video game experiences. And for those, of course, subjectivity also plays a major role. And I think that's a, a area that I feel quite comfortable in and quite confident in, and that I think would be a, a major contribution to the, the future development of game studies. And so I'm going to keep talking about subjectivity and video games and game studies for quite a couple more more years, hopefully. Right now, for example, I'm working on a book on fictional practices of spirituality, together with my dear colleague, uh, Dr. Leonardo Mercato. And our basic idea is that um, spirituality or engaging with your own spirituality is, of course, an incredibly subjective issue. And therefore, of course, um, it deserves a, a very specific lens of looking at video games. We cannot talk about video games in general and talk about them being a spiritual medium, for example. But we can talk about how video games may engage our subjective understanding of our own personal and intimate ideas of, of spirituality. And I'm really looking forward to see what's coming from that in the future. Well, actually, that sounds like a great project. Not only one project, actually, but more of them to come. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed it. So all that is left to say, I'm afraid, is now take care and goodbye. I will absolutely do so, Rudolf. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Wishing you a great day as well. Uh, I'm going to most likely play some Returnal in the near future because um, yeah, I actually played a lot of it already. It's a fantastic game. I haven't played the DLC yet, but I really want to do so next. And yeah, I, I hope you have something really cool on your shelf in your collection that you're looking forward to play as well. Thank you for your time. Game on and hopefully see you again sometime. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.